Reeling from all the terrible news, but not sure how to take action? I'm Kelly. I'm Lila. And this is What Can I Do? Each week, we interview activists about how they took action, what got them started, who helped them along the way, and what they do differently next time. In the process, we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on Twitter to making a difference. So let's get started. Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollock. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what you can do for the next two years before we have another presidential election. I am here with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hello, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How are you? I am doing great. So (laughs) finally, (laughs) finally. So we are in this uh, post midterm. uh, They're not done counting votes, but you know, we're more or less uh, done. We're done with the election, except for some runoffs and some other stuff. But uh, we are in this moment where we are all saying, okay, yay, we did it. And now what? So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Yeah, I think, you know, oftentimes because when a presidential election is coming up, um, we start to get announcements right after the midterms. People start to get back into electoral gear, I think, more quickly than they need to when, you know, we have an opportunity to think about some of the other ways that you can make change outside of the electoral system at a time like this. And this is a good time to do that kind of thing. Uh, And of course, as we're saying that, I will note that there are in 2023 still some big elections. So we we don't want to ignore the fact that elections happen in 23, uh, including in my city in Chicago, we will have major mayoral election going on. uh, And the primary for that will be where all the the real stuff happens. So uh, don't forget those sorts of things. But uh, you can make change outside of elections. And that's what we want to focus on today. Yeah. So uh, we have spoken to, at this point, a number of people, and we've heard some great things about what you can do outside of elections, outside of political campaigns, uh, or at least electoral campaigns. So uh, let's start talking through that a little bit. And we're going to start by talking about actions. Uh, So one of the actions, and this is so important, and I think as we're heading into Thanksgiving, this is exactly the time to be thinking about this is changing the conversation within the communities that you are already in. So Lila, can you give us some examples of of this type of action? Absolutely. I think something that really comes to mind is our conversation with Reverend Angela from Sacred, where, you know, she she was talking about changing the conversation specifically around reproductive justice within religious communities. And the way in which they approach their work is not necessarily like goal point driven. It's about creating inclusive spaces inside of already existing religious communities and also giving religious communities a blueprint that they can use to become more inclusive spaces. And I think that's something that you can think about, you know, as you, this is actually something I think that, you know, we, we spoke a bit about when we were talking um, about the, the Kansas uh, Mm -hmm. abortion vote. And it's, it's something that's really about, you know, how you frame issues, how you, how you kind of approach people and meet them where they're at. So I think, you know, thinking about how you can use the language and sort of the, the understandings that are already at play in in people's own communities as a way of engaging them on issues that they don't think that they agree with you on um, is something that that I think those two episodes would be really helpful in terms of thinking about. And then I also thinking about how you can engage your small town or your local community in uh, conversations that 
deal with local issues. We talked, you know, to uh, Chloe and Canyon of Dirt Road Revival about talking about rural issues within a rural community and running on rural issues. And then we also talked to Don Hebbard from Compressor Free Franklin about how you can engage a community on a hyper local scale and, you know, what the what the sort of larger benefits of that kind of engagement can be. Yeah. And uh, in addition to uh, listening to our episodes again before Thanksgiving, Chloe and Kenyon's film is now out as yes. well. And so that might be something as you're thinking about sitting across the dinner table with people that you don't always agree with, uh, you might want to watch their film uh, to be inspired. Absolutely. So uh, another type of action uh, is to build new political communities. And this precisely the time to do that in the, the sort of post midterm yeah. world, when we don't want people to become unengaged, uh, when there's a high level of engagement right now. So what are some examples of building these new political communities? Well, I think this is actually an area where local action can really coincide with electoral action. Uh, we talked to Chi Osei, the New York City Councilman, about how his involvement in politics really began with the BLM protests. That was a sort of large-scale protest that came together in part because local communities protested in you know local environments and created a national community. And that has fed a lot of the really exciting candidacies that we saw coming out of you know that that 2020 era, including his, you know, a lot of young people, a lot of young candidates and young activists came out of that. But we can also look to communities, you know, like Burn Pits 360. We talked to Rosie Torres and Susan Zyer of Burn Pits 360. They formed a group around a really specific issue and then went to Washington to go lobby for that issue. This was an issue that it wasn't like there were pre-existing groups that were advocating on this basis, you know, at a large scale prior to Burn Pits 360's engagement. There were kind of disparate activists, you know, identifying a problem. And they were really able to bring that group together, come up with a coordinated plan and go to Washington and get legislation passed. And that was that was really a, an effort that sprung up, you know, just based on the efforts of people like Rosie Torres. It, it was yeah. it was not something that came together because like big money, you know, sponsored it or anything like that. It was really a local community that desperately needed change and did whatever they could to make that happen. We also, you know, we spoke to Amanda Littman for, of Run for Something, and that's in the electoral area. But what she did at Run for Something is create a space for young and, you know, like inexperienced candidates to come and get the information that they needed to run effectively. That was something, you know, they had a huge, huge wins in this election and they, yeah. their wins seem to compound in every election. But, you know, that wasn't something that was uh, driven directly out of a specific electoral situation. They formed a group, they trained the candidates and they made something happen that is now sustainable and is helping people in lots of communities, you know, form new political communities locally. So all of those are really great examples of creating the community that you need for the reason, you know, for, for the purpose that you need it. But I think in a lot of ways, that's what every single person that we've talked to on this podcast has done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, another great action, one of my favorites always, uh, is making art. So, uh, of course, in our uh, previous set of episodes, we had talked to Shannon Downey about uh, making art, uh, but we had a more recent example of that as well. Yeah, I that was something that came up specifically in the Compressor Free Franklin episode where we interviewed Don Hebbard, because that was a, an effort that I had a lot of personal engagement with. And I remember that, you know, 
he, the, the community that Compressor Free Franklin was working in is a community that has a lot of artists living in it. And so the way in which that effort was able to gain visibility was that a lot of the artists were willing to contribute their work and it became a very um, visible effort and it and, and visual, visually interesting effort because of that. So, you know, when you're thinking about building these communities and how you organize around specific issues, you should not ignore the benefit that art and the the kind of almost, I don't want to use the language of like, you know, capitalism to describe this, but it's almost like, it's like branding. It's a brand opportunity to have, you know, effective art. And it's a really important way to make sure that your issue is visible to people that aren't necessarily personally engaged with you. Yeah, uh, Chloe and Kenyon did that as well. They yes. made uh, made campaign signs, but made them like had the the community around them help them actually create them. Uh, you know, like drawing on cardboard or whatever. Uh, and that's I think you know another thing we've talked about a lot is making this fun, and that is something yes. that creating art can definitely do for you. Totally. So uh, in addition to sort of types of action, we've talked about a number of different themes. Uh, and I I think the, the themes are especially important if you're taking a beat after the midterms to sort of say, what's next? How do I want to get involved? Where is my role? Thinking through these themes uh, and your answer to sort of where you fit in this is really important. Uh, so one of those, of course, is about scale. And, you know, we've talked about all sorts of scale <laughs> in this uh, in this podcast. There's, there's all sorts of things you can do? Are you looking national or even international? Are you looking hyper-local? So what are some of the examples we've had of that? So of course we had, I think our most hyper-local was Compressor Free Franklin and Don Hebbard. Um, and then I think Chloe Maxman and Canyon Woodward also, you know, took what was a very local effort and actually made it kind of a national effort because they basically took what they learned in their own community and started teaching other people how to apply those same skills in their communities. And I think that's that's kind of similar to what we talked about with Run for Something. Amanda Littman, you know, took a bunch of candidates for local office and made a kind of Nash created a national solution to a local problem, essentially. Burn Pits 360 was not a local issue. It was a national issue, but it was a specific issue. And so they were working on a national issue that they required a lot of local effort on. And so I think figuring out, you know, the difference between like whether your issue is national in scale, but a sort of specific issue or local in scale, but a broad issue is kind of critical. And so that's something to think about as you think about where you want to work. Yeah. And so somewhat relatedly, uh, this idea, uh, another theme that has emerged is, are you looking at really focused action? There is like a thing you are trying to solve and, you know, then maybe the group just goes away once you solve the problem versus uh, something broader, something that, you know, and I, I think of it as like, do I want to save the climate or do I want to like get a tree planted here? Like, you know, right. very broad, very, very focused. Uh, so what are some of the examples we've seen of that? I think this is actually an area where the example of Burn Pits 360 is really instructive because, you know, I just mentioned that that's a very specific issue that was national in scale. But the other thing that was important to know about that issue is that they were using the model of another similar issue to enact their national plan. So they were taking the advocacy efforts surrounding the Zadroga Act and they were applying those strategies to yet another issue that dealt with a national but specific community. So I think a lot of the time, if you're doing really focused work, you can still call upon the examples of other communities that are national in scale or not, you know, that did similar kinds of work. 
But we can also think about, you know, like in the case of Compressor Free Franklin, they were doing really focused work on not just a local issue, but a very specific issue. There were times that they lent support to other causes. There were times that they, you know, directed their efforts to broader issues. But for the most part, they worked on that specific issue. When the compressor station was defeated, the group didn't have to <laughs> didn't have to do as much anymore. And so they they didn't fully disband, but they kind of partially disbanded. They were able to focus their efforts elsewhere. And then, you know, when we think about uh, the the sort of funnel of Chloe Maxman, you know, began in the environmental movement, and that was that was work that was on you know that was national scale work, and used that to kind of to create a path for herself to local office, which is an interesting path and a kind of common path for a lot of the people we spoke to. A lot of people actually started in the environmental movement. The environmental movement feeds a lot of locally based movements, and so that I think a lot of the time, big national action not just has the function of helping raise awareness about big national issues, but also can help train the activists that need to be on the ground when local concerns that are specific come up. Yeah, I think the other important piece about this is that even if what you're doing is starting with a broad idea or sort of a a broad topic, you need to have achievable things along the way for lots of reasons to keep yourself motivated (laughs) to measure your success all of those things and so even in really broad movements there's usually focused actions that go with it absolutely so uh, another theme uh, of course that we've talked about uh, and i've also talked about on my other podcast my history podcast and i'll I'll talk (laughs) about that at the end is this idea of are you going to be working within a political system, the inside approach, uh, or is this grassroots actions or inside established political networks? Is this independent? Like, how, how are you approaching the uh, the activism that you're doing? So what have we talked about with that? Well, I think we have a really good mix here of people that were working inside of the system and then people that were working at the grassroots level, people doing a mix of both, people that took their experience in the, inside the system and applied it to grassroots efforts. It's actually, this is something that I talk about a lot myself and is because of that something I've been trying to ask all of our guests about because I have always found, you know, that in, in my own advocacy that I work a lot better outside of the sort of uh, established political system. I'm, I'm, I enjoy, and I'm good at advocacy, and I'm not good at working inside of an office with a suit and a, you know, and and a boss and all of those things. And I think a lot of people prescribe me- more meaning to one or the other depending on, you know, where what their political background is. So some people think that if you're not working inside the system to change the system from the inside, then you're not really accomplishing anything. And I think a lot of people in the activism community think that if you're working inside of the system, you're a sellout and you shouldn't, you know, that unless you're freed from the constraints of working of the system, then you're not accomplishing anything. And I think the the truth is that both of those can be effective depending on what your skills are and what your interests are. So grassroots action is really appropriate to small, local, specific issues. Oftentimes, that's really the only route to approach a lot of those issues. But you have to have partners in the systems of power as well for all of these things. And I think, you know, that's that's why when we talk um, your, about Unsung History, like that episode that we're going to talk about really demonstrates that really specifically. And so I think more so than thinking about one of those being the right approach versus the other. I think what we've kind of learned through these interviews is that 
your your um, piece of the process might <laughs> one of those might be better suited to you, um, but that in general you need to sort of figure out both inside and outside actions and both inside and outside systems to take on. Yeah. So uh, another theme, and this is uh, in many ways kind of why we started this podcast, I think, <laughs> is helping people figure out, are you going to go work with an already established organization, uh, either work with them or spin off of them in some way, or found your own, or are you going to start a brand new organization? And so can you talk a little bit about what, what we've seen as examples of that? Uh, and I think this is probably the key thing that people need to sort of think through if they have an issue that they they really want to work on over the next couple of years. Absolutely. I think hyper-local action often requires starting something new on some level. I mean, if you look at the way, like Burn Pits 360 is a perfect example of an issue that was not being addressed by any specific advocacy group, but they had partners in other veterans organizations that they brought on once they were able to educate them about the issue and get their buy-in. So starting an action around a either local or specific issue often requires starting your own thing, but it requires bringing on partners from big established organizations a lot of the time if you really do want to be effective. But then, you know, you can also think about like Amanda Lippman and her co-founder Ross, you know, sort of saw a gap in the electoral the training system and the uh, candidate recruitment uh, process and decided to fill it. So they were both people that came out of big, not big established orgs, but establishment political backgrounds. Um, they came out of the Obama world and decided that they needed to start their own thing to fill a gap. And they work with organizations, you know, across the sort of democratic spectrum in order to fulfill those goals. But they had to do that by starting their own organization because there was really nothing doing what they had their eye on doing. We also, though, have, you know, we talked to Candace Carrison, who from Democrats Abroad, and, you know, that's a very established organization. It's a wing of a major party. And she kind of worked her way up there. She found a way to be she found that she was able to be effective, you know, as she moved up through leadership in that, you know, pre-existing organization. And in part, that's because that was an organization that had the reach and ability and credibility to do a lot of the things that a new organization would not be able to do. And to, you know, to sort of helm an organization like that gives you the opportunity to take advantage of the, that groundwork of that pre-established network of, of the uh, resources that they already have in place. And so always people who start a new thing should have their eye to what established organizations they could do work in partnership with. But also there's a way to sort of exist in the best of both worlds to some extent or the worst of both worlds, depending on who you're talking to. <laughs> and negotiating that is part of doing the work because you ultimately are always stronger when you have a lot of partners. Yeah. And I think the sort of final thing on that is don't start a new organization if you don't have to. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And uh, just don't do any more work than you absolutely have to. <laughs> just as a life rule. <laughs> I, you know, go out and look and see. And that's, you know, in addition to our interviews, hopefully being useful to people in sort of learning how to be an activist. I hope they're also introducing people to organizations that already exist right. that, you know, maybe they're already doing the thing you want to do and you don't have to go build it all over again. So, you know, if you have to, if the gap is there, great. Uh, but if you don't, <laughs> right. don't do it. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, and then the the last theme and, you know, as people are sort of headed toward the end of the year and New Year's resolutions and stuff, I think is a, a great time to be thinking about this, which is, is activism uh, a career? Is this what you do as your day job? Or is this something you do on the side as a, a hobby or a vocation? You know, what what does that look like? I think this is a really um, important question for people to consider in part, because I think a lot of people think that if activism or advocacy is not going to be their career, then they aren't going to be able to contribute anything meaningful. I thought what Don Hebbard said about seeing advocacy as an act of service and sort of an act of community service was really inspiring. We we saw a lot of the people that we spoke to, even those that are currently employed, you know, in their capacities, uh, tell us about how they started as volunteers or they started as you know, just sort of like essentially freelance advocates who were just concerned about an issue and then found a community because of that concern. Certainly there there are opportunities to make advocacy your career if that's something that you want. You know, I think uh, Amanda Littman's job is at Run for Something and that has been a really fulfilling experience for her. She spoke a lot about that. Um, you know, Reverend Angela works at an established organization and does work that she finds fulfilling there. Um, but this is her job. That's what she does for a living. But that's not the only way that you can work on an issue. And especially I think when we talk about hyper-local issues, if there's something in your community that you wish would change, most of that work is not paid and it's done by volunteers. And that is something that people with, with jobs and families and things do on the side. And it's oftentimes a really great way to find a community of people that share your values and interests. And so it's something that I think you can think of more as civic engagement and more as sort of like the responsibility of just like being in a society than something that you have to gear towards some kind of career outcome. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's worth noting that uh, not everybody has the the privilege of being able to right. do advocacy, volunteer stuff on the side. Some people are working many, many jobs or right. kids take care of or whatever. And so if you do have that privilege and it's something that you uh, both enjoy and find meaningful, you know, that, that can be sort of the way that, that you're giving back. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's just worth noting because obviously not everybody can do such things. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, we've talked about a lot. I think, you know, people can, of course, go back and listen to or re-listen to episodes. Uh, our, our guests have just been incredible. And we've had these great conversations uh, that I think we're both really uh, excited about. So I hope as people are, think, you know, sort of winding down from election season, <laughs> thinking about what's next, hopefully staying inspired, more inspired maybe than they were a couple of weeks ago, uh, that, you know, we're thinking about all, all of these topics and, and actions that we can take. So we're going to close this episode out with a, a clip from the other podcast that I do, which is called Unsung History. If you're not familiar with it, Unsung History is a, a podcast where I look at uh, often stories from marginalized groups within United States history generally. And uh I am not the expert in history, so I interview historians uh, or journalists or people who've written about these stories. And so I did an episode recently that really touches on a number of these same topics. And I think that uh, it can be really inspirational sometimes to look back at activism and advocacy that has happened in the past and really low moments maybe and see sort of how did the country get out of it then? So 
this particular episode, my guest is Dr. Felicia Cornblue uh, from the University of Vermont. And uh, this is a story that is both a story she writes as an academic, but also one that is personal to her. And it is about the lead up to the Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, so this is uh, within New York State uh, and New York City in the late 1960s, very early 1970s. And there were activists trying to change the law about abortion access uh, in New York, and they were successful in very early 1970 in changing the law so that New York at the time had the uh, most liberal abortion laws in the entire country. Uh, and what's really sort of crucial about this story is seeing that what we just talked about, the inside outside, is seeing that it took both it took the activists who were on the outside, definitely on the outside, literally sometimes outside the building, uh, <laughs> but it also took the people on the inside who could get the legislation written, who could, you know, pull arms of different legislators to get them to vote, that sort of thing. So we're going to play a clip from that. If you would like to listen to the whole episode, you can get to it via the Unsung History feed uh, and also unsunghistorypodcast.com. And we'll put the link in our notes. The link will be in the show notes as well. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, any uh, parting words before we head into that clip? No, I think this is very exciting because I think oftentimes uh, sort of histories of impactful moments in American history get kind of sanitized and the the impact that activism had on them gets kind of sanitized out of them. And I think this is a really important time to realize that we do still have the opportunity to change the outcome in our, in our current phase of this conversation mm -hmm. via activism. So yeah. I'm excited for everyone to listen. Excellent. Thank you, Lila. As someone born in the late 70s, my view has always sort of been shaped by, well, Roe happened and like that was it. That just changed everything and not a real sense of sort of what what came before that, you know, what what led to Roe happening in the first place. What I appreciated so much about what you do here is show the the importance of all the activism that is happening, of all the organizing that is happening leading up to that, that it's not just like a court case happens and boom, everything changes, but there's an actual process to get there. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the this, what's happening in New York, how that momentum is building to, to decriminalize abortion in New York in the late 60s, and how that then eventually gets to this legal, this judicial framework that ends up changing the, the status of abortion in the country. Yeah, it's a little bit tricky because if you just look at the opinion and Roe versus Wade, it appears that to a large degree, it appears that it's, you know, it's the result of judicial reasoning. And of course, there was judicial reasoning, like, I don't want to discount that. Um, and there was an understanding of what the court's own precedents, you know, had done, how they had led to that point. But what I'm trying to show is that there also was activism that was percolating, and that actually shows up in a lot of key areas. So for example, in Roe versus Wade, Justice Blackman relies a lot on changing medical opinion and changing opinion within the public health community. 
And, you know, it's important to Supreme Court justices that they're going to change their mind about something or change policy in a significant way. They want to say, oh, we're changing this because, you know, facts on the ground have changed or scientific understanding has changed, right? It used to be important to the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, if you look at some of the big, the big liberal opinions, the big ones that expanded people's rights. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> what they're doing. <laughs> I can't speak to the contemporary majority of the Supreme Court. But so Blackman relies a lot on, for example, the American Medical Association. Well, why does the American Medical Association change its view on abortion? Largely because of this fight that's happening in New York. There's, there's open overt lobbying of the AMA. There is um, a civil disobedience action in the national meeting of the AMA when it comes to New York City in July of 1969, uh, I guess, before the, before New York State changes its law in 1970, right? And also after New York changes its law, there's so many doctors in New York that the AMA is really worried that there's going to be a conflict between the AMA's, what was at that time a really strict anti-abortion AMA policy and the fact that New York had just liberalized its law. And so they perceived there was this tension between the New York law and what it allowed versus what the AMA canon of ethics and, you know, AMA standards allowed or permitted doctors to do. And they didn't want doctors to be running afoul of medical ethics while they were following the law in New York. And so they changed their understanding of medical ethics. And because they, they made that change, Justice Blackman then, you know, shows up in Roe versus Wade and he's like, oh, the AMA has recently changed its policy. And is, had now has a much more liberal approach, you know, and that, that's just one, one example, but it was also true of the American Public Health Association and the New York law itself, which allowed uh, a legal abortion for any cause up until the 24th week of a pregnancy. And that's not, you know, that's not the entire length of a pregnancy, but it's roughly that first two trimesters period, which is the period that Roe versus Wade also allows and echoes. So you really see all these ways in which um, an intense grassroots fight that achieved legislative change and achieved change in these different professional societies and all of that sort of came up from the grassroots and ultimately shapes the decision and the opinion that comes down from the United States Supreme Court. And so as part of this activism, and you point out several places where this happens. There's a lot of both inside and outside organizing. And sometimes that's <laughs> very literal, like inside the room and outside the room. But it, it happens sort of all over the place. Uh, and it, it feels like that's important, not just to the history, but also to the sort of future and, and what um, what activists might want to continue to do. Uh, and that happens both in the abortion activism, but also in uh, in things like the anti-sterilization movement. So can you talk a little bit about that, uh, sort of where that comes up, that inside-outside organizing and, and how these things are really working in concert? Yeah, I think, I think of that as an incredibly important historical point and also one for contemporary politics and future politics. It really does seem like it required activism in the streets, you know, which changed public opinion. You know, for example, around abortion, there were radical feminists who were shouting down legislators who were breaking up meetings, you know, and, and those, I mean, like historians have done an okay job of 
of remembering them and putting them into the historical record. But there also were all these people like my mother who then translated that change in public opinion and translated that that um, energy that was coming up into actual legislative text. And we need them too, right? We need both. Um, I don't think that that my mom and other members of the National Organization for Women would have been able to do it alone. But I also don't think that the radical feminists who were shouting down the legislators would have been able to do it alone. And similarly, you know, I look at these very important successes that the anti-sterilization movement had, you know, that they were able first to change the way New York City's public hospitals ran things, and then they were able to pass a law in the New York City Council, and ultimately they got the federal government to change its policy based on their victory in New York. And they were doing the same thing, right? They were um, inside the public hospital bureaucracy and kind of haggling it out, you know, hashing it out with these elite doctors who were like, don't take away our autonomy to, you know, to sterilize people when we want to sterilize people. Like they were in the room fighting it out. You know, it's probably really boring, a lot of the time, (laughs) really frustrating. And they were outside organizing Puerto Rican community members and black community members to, you know, to have protests, um, to be loud, to storm meetings sometimes, to testify, right? And what, what the people who were involved in that movement remember is that they needed both strategies. Mm-hmm. They needed them all the time, even if it was the same people, essentially. You know, they needed to be working in both ways. And that's how they had these amazing successes. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at whatcanidopod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW Media.